character is the indispensable quality in a president. We learn that over and over and over again. Lincoln was not particularly well prepared for the presidency to the extent that he held no executive offices, no military experience, but he had character and the capacity to grow. Hello, I'm Jeff Cabaservice from the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the muddled, moderate majority of Americans, drawing upon history, biography, and current events. And I'm truly pleased and honored to be joined today by John Avalon. He is Senior Political Analyst and Anchor at CNN, where he hosts the Reality Check video series. He is also the former Chief Speechwriter for New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, the former Editor-in-Chief and Managing Director of The Daily Beast, and an author, columnist, and commentator who has written several books, including, most recently, the terrific new study, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. Welcome, John. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Jeff. And congratulations again on your new book. As you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, which only came out about two weeks ago. Uh, I know that it's already no, number one bestseller in U.S. Civil War history on Amazon. Yep. Yep. I was gratified to, to see that. And, uh, you know, no, it's freshly hatched. So it's making its way in the world on wobbly legs, but uh, gaining strength every day. And, uh, you know, when, when, when you've been to this rodeo a few times, you you, you know how, how things go. And, and I've been grateful to people like yourself and the people who bought my previous books and, you know, Colbert and Bill Maher and all those places that, um, you know, have me on to talk about it. Uh, more relevant than ever, but still history. So I appreciate it. Well, congrats. Um, among your other books is 2017's Washington Farewell. So this is not your first work of applied history, uh, which looks back to our greatest presidents for usable wisdom. But, you know, there have been 16,000 books written about Lincoln, as you pointed out. Um, and really, yeah. this is the first to examine him as a peacemaker. So it's really uh, uh, both enormously original and a thought-provoking historical study that in so many ways speaks to our present polarized political predicament, uh, as well as just being a beautifully written and engaging read. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of applied history, as you say, but, you know, I, I want it to read in a, an abrasing way. But as you also know, uh, all my books, uh, Independent Nation, Wingnuts, Washington's Farewell, uh, and my columns and uh, journalism, all, you know, the, the through line has always been um, reasserting the strength of the center, offering lessons on how to play offense and, and, and to overcome hyperpartisanship and polarization and those forces that uh, I think you and I and, and our listeners agree threaten democracy and, and the founding fathers worried about it as well. So it is um, we are fighting in good company against long odds, uh, but but democracy in America is worth it. I agree. Uh, I, I'm curious to know how the idea of this particular book project came to you. Sure. Well, first of all, I mean, Lincoln is a, a soulful companion for anyone who buys into the civic religion of America. And I, I certainly did from a young age because my grandparents were immigrants. And like many immigrant families, we were taught to appreciate America. Um, that you couldn't take the blessings of liberty in this country for granted. And there's something about Lincoln that is is medicine to the soul, particularly in divided and polarized times. Also, of course, my last book being about Washington, you know, 80 years after the farewell address or 70 years after the farewell address, the nation is, is facing that great crisis that Washington and the founders feared. And Lincoln steps into the breach to try to heal a divided nation. He's a man of peace in a time of war. He's a reconciler 
in a time of radicals and reactionaries. And there's a lot about his, his life and the lessons of his leadership that are enormously applicable to people searching for a way to um, overcome the, the threats of violent polarization we're dealing with today. What also attracted me, which is the, the other layer of the book, is this question of how you win a peace. Um, it's one that certainly in our lifetime, America has struggled with unsuccessfully uh, in many cases. And to look at how Lincoln as a peacemaker anticipated many of the best practices that were ultimately put in place by the United States after the, first, after the Second World War. And that was crystallized for me in a quote I found years ago by General Lucius Clay, who is an American general born in the South 30 years after the Civil War, son of a three-term Georgia senator. Um, and he presided over you know, what's sometimes known as the, the, the good occupation of, of Germany. And some reporter asked him what guided his decisions. And he said, I tried to think what Abraham Lincoln would have done for the South if he had lived. And that opened it up to me because I'm always interested in the afterlife of ideas and the application of ideas and turning ideas into action. And certainly you see in, in Lucius Clay and, and, and in the Marshall Plan, uh, most primarily, uh, which is an investment in peace, the opposite of reparations, um, that this approach of combining strength with magnanimity, unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace, uh, is enormously effective. It's given us 70 years of peace and prosperity in Europe, which is being tested today by Vladimir Putin, but it's all the more reason for us to not take those gains for granted. Uh, John, I think you mentioned that you grew up partially in the South. Can you tell me something about your early upbringing and education? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I was born in New York City, and my folks moved um, uh, to South Carolina, Charleston, when I was 14 years old. And so I did you know, get, uh, I love the South. I love Charleston. I love South Carolina. And I did get a glimpse of, of kind of the, the last cultural hangovers. And I mean, I mean, glimpse, you know, we'd pass a plaque that says, you know, the war of Northern aggression stuff like that. Um, and, uh, so, so I appreciate that perspective, but I'm also interested in, in, in reconciling it. And, and the South and Charleston in particular has changed so much, uh, since my folks moved there 30 years ago, but you know, it is this, Fitful, prog fitful progress we've made, um, particularly since the civil rights era, when all of a sudden things opened up again. And, and uh, it, it's also a reminder for me, and something that you and I are both passionate about, that the stereotype of, of uh, the nation being comprised of unbridgeable divides between red states and blue states is fundamentally false. In, in fact, if you want to look, and without, without discounting the danger of the tribal politics we're dealing with today, um, it's much more true to say that the deepest divides in our politics are urban versus rural. And then when you study history, you see that those were in many ways the dividing lines at the Constitutional Convention. And, um, you know, it, it, and I wrote about this at great length in Washington's Farewell, but, but you know, in recent research, I noted that almost every major Southern city uh, voted, for example, for Biden over Trump and Hillary Clinton over Trump and, uh, and for Obama. I mean, there are one or two exceptions like Oklahoma City. But and, and it's just a reminder that we are not as divided as it seems sometimes. And that's something of an article of faith for people like you and me who try to speak from the center um, and, and who are looking for ways to reunite the nation. And, and we realize so often we are divided by false choices and false dichotomies. And uh, it's important to call those out to give people hope that, that resonates with their own real lived experience. Since you have become one of our greatest bards of centrism, um, I'm curious uh, to as to who some of your early heroes or inspirations might have been. Well, um, 
from American history, I mean, you know, uh, certainly I always gravitated to Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, George Washington to some extent, Jefferson to some extent. Uh, and and, and it, it always seemed to me that the bifurcation of politics into partisan divides actually ignored the way that we look at leaders in the rearview mirror of history, where in many cases, the least important thing about them is what political party they belong to, because the associations no longer apply. You know, the Republicans in, in Lincoln's time were an upstart third party. It was a big tent party. It was a moderate progressive party devoted to um, stopping at very least the spread of slavery. And we can have a great conversation, you and me, about the different varieties of, of the centrist <laughs> and moderate experience, um, because it's important, I think, make moral distinctions uh, for folks or functional distinctions. Um, you know, in, in my own growing up, I think that Bill Clinton's sort of third way DLC Democrats when I was in, in a freshman in college made a big impression on me, mostly because it did manage to break down a lot of the, the dichotomies and false choices. Um, and Democrats today sometimes forget that, you know, before Bill Clinton came along for all of his self-inflicted wounds politically, that Democrats had lost three consecutive elections with more than 40 states. And that, that recentering of the Democratic Party through the DLC was an enormously effective principled political project. And then I went to work for Rudy Giuliani in New York as mayor. And at the time, Rudy um, also represented a, a third way tradition. And politically, there wasn't that much of a difference between him and Bill Clinton, albeit working in a, in a city, uh, overwhelmingly Democratic city. But he drew on that urban Republican tradition that dates back to you know, at least Fiorella LaGuardia and, mm -hmm. and and Teddy Roosevelt, and I remember there was a there was a new uh, New Republic uh, cover story by Peter Beinert at the time called the New Progressives, and it highlighted these third way mayors at the time, people like Rudy, Dick Reardon in L.A., Stephen Goldsmith of Indianapolis, Michael White of Cleveland, who were were really bringing urban America back from the brink uh, by 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 challenging the sort of sclerotic, you know, bureaucracies. Uh, that that had, had had stopped progress and all sort of all, all sort of manners of excuses they came up with, but that was a major inspiration to me as well. Uh, and and Rudy today is very different as a matter of judgment and temperament than he was then. Um, but but I learned a lot from him as well as a young man as his chief speechwriter in my my twenties. Well, without naming names, um, we've both known people who once were considered centrists, maybe who even believed uh, themselves to be moderates and centrists who subsequently were drawn toward the political extremes. And I wonder you know, how you would respond to what I think is a growing perception, really on both the left and the right, that centrism is gray and boring, or that it stands for nothing, or that at any rate, it can't command the passions needed to bring about widespread change. So I, I fundamentally reject that, not surprisingly. And I think you can speak to the leadership of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and many others to show that that's a completely self-serving argument that doesn't, that rewards the extremes and ignores the mainstream of wisdom in, in, in American political history. It is one of the things that the extremes do to try to diminish the power and effectiveness and record of the center in American politics. And, and I think many cases it's reinforced in our time, not only by um, the political uh, weight that's been given via polarization, but the rise of the partisan economy, which itself is enormously corrupting. Um, it takes people who are more sensible and more centrist in any given party, and it says, look, the smart money politically and economically is to back the extremes, and we will distract you through, through the narcotic of negative partisanship, and we will ask you to focus almost exclusively on the perceived sins of, of the caricatures of the opposite side. 
And that feedback loop is enormously effective in polarizing the electorate. Um, and that itself is reinforced by incentive structure in our politics, which is completely screwed up by intention through the rigged system of redistricting and closed partisan primaries that further polarize the electorate and then gives people the appearance of choices between the, the relative extremes. Um, it, it means that general elections are virtually uncontested and it slides states and, and, and to, to one-party status, which itself is always a recipe for corruption, uh, among other things, moral or practical um, or, or, or criminal in some cases. That is not the great wellspring of strength in American political history. That is not where most of our most effective leaders have come from. It is a false choice being reinforced by people with a vested interest in these outcomes. And that's why it needs to be pushed against deeply in a principled way, drawing on history, drawing on the realities of effective leadership. But it does require that those of us in the center, first of all, stand up, speak out, straighten our civic backbones, that we clad ourselves in you know, <laughs> bright primary colors, not pale pastels. Uh, and that we also recognize that some of the criticisms of the center need to be pushed back on as well. The idea that, you know, that, 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 that some folks in, in the center are transactional and opportunistic as opposed to principled and determined is one that even Lincoln himself faced. I mean, he was, uh, a, a, as I say, a, a reformer, a reconciler in a time of radicals and reactionaries. As Frederick Douglass said, from an abolitionist perspective, he could be seen as tardy, cool, and indifferent, but seen from the perspective of other politicians who were bound to consult the sentiments of, of the citizenry, he was zealous, radical, and determined. And the wisdom there is that Lincoln was focused on trying to achieve sustainable change. That's what folks in the center do, in the vital center. And a Stephen Douglas. I could argue, is an example of how not to be a moderate in the context of Lincoln's time. He pushed a compromise bill of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He pretended to be agnostic on the question of slavery, he said, let's leave it up to the states. That is, is the kind of amoral trimming that gives centrists a bad name. Ultimately, the strength of the center, like the strength of the middle in our political system, like the strength of the middle class, is absolutely necessary ballast for a democracy to move things forward. It depends on competitive general elections and people competing for votes in the center. What we're dealing with now is a complete perversion of the system, and it has led to politicians deciding that the smart money means you will play to the extremes, and that directly leads to a crisis of confidence in democracy. It leads to division and dysfunction, where politicians are only thinking about how to win an next election and protect their jobs, not how to solve problems on behalf of the American people. And that only feeds into the worst stereotypes of authoritarians as they try to run down the effectiveness of democracy. So, you know, that that's the big picture we always need to keep in mind. The strength of the center is absolutely directly results in the strength of democracy. So if you are working against that in any way, shape or form where you are trying to offer people false choices and trying to come up with all sorts of ornate rationalizations, why playing to the base rather than playing to the center is, is the smart political move. At the end of the day, you are contributing to the arguments that our enemies make against democracy, that we are divided and dysfunctional and can't make decisions on behalf of people. So we do need to build a movement, to, a broad movement to defend democracy in America right now. We also need to strengthen the center in America um, uh, and, 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 and to, to wake ourselves and shake ourselves from this, this incredibly dangerous tribalism, which has preoccupied our politics and compromised democracy's strength and effectiveness at a time where we need to demonstrate that arguably now more than any time in living memory. Amen to that. Uh, and I want to insert here a little plug for your reality check series uh, on CNN, which is looking at extremism, but also I think diagnosing the vulnerabilities of moderation and the center, which which 
in some sense enables the success of extremists. Yeah, I mean, any um, understanding, a, a rational understanding of the relative merits and demerits of any political perspective requires understanding uh, in, in an empathetic way, where the hit on you is that's that's rational and what's just cynical and specious. And so the center needs to be very aware of, of this idea that it's a split the difference, mushy middle, you know, find find a, a mathematically gauged middle point on any moral issue uh, and and or, or trade away great principles for, for, for marginal gains. That is the exact opposite of what we need to do. We need to play offense from the center. We need to call out the extremes. We need to figure out what are the great principles we are steering towards that can unite people. In, in at the end of the day, understanding this is not a maximalist ideological project, but it is about saying that you know many of us in the center are, are, are more fiscally conservative and more socially liberal to libertarian. That, that is not the only formulation for the center, but it is where many folks are. And most of all, we need to insist and fight for reforms that will defend democracy by resulting in more representative elections. Representative elections get representative results. So I do think it's a matter of having a fighting spirit, um, being a happy warrior, but standing up clearly for what we believe in to counteract those negative stereotypes uh, about the center. That says that you know that it's the it's the old poem by W. B. Yeats, you know, the Second mm-hmm. Coming, you know, oh, yeah. the the, the uh, you know where 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 the the, uh, the the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passion and intensity. Asking for passion and intensity from the best from the center is not too much to ask given the stakes, and that's what we need to supply. We need to show people there is an alternative, and that this is a great cause worth being part of and joining. Uh, Alan Gueltso. Uh, wrote a generally admiring review of your book in last yes. week's New York Times. Um, and he's a great Civil War historian, but he's also one of the few conservatives in academia, and he seemed to be puzzled by your whole conception of, of centrism. Uh, he seems to feel, as he put it, that your portrait of the 16th president as a soulful centrist uh, plays down the highly ideological Lincoln. And I think that's because in Gueltso's view, Lincoln took firm and non-squishy positions on tariffs, on infrastructure building. You know, there wasn't a lot of room there for compromise with the Democrats' position. And he further took uh, a frankly confrontational position that there could be no compromise between freedom and slavery and that the nation had to become all the one thing or all the other. I, well, look, I mean, I, first of all, I, I appreciate his review. It was... Um, uh, overall, very positive, and and I appreciate you know the headline on Lincoln for our polarized times. I'll take that all day long. I was struck by the fact that yes, he is he is a a, a self-identified conservative in academia. More power to him for that. We need ideological diversity matters as much as any other kind of diversity, probably That's more. Right. But. Um, you know, I was struck by the fact that he seized on one line in the conclusion where I describe Lincoln as a soulful centrist and decide to make that as his his, uh, his 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 counterpoint. Where he's clearly exercising an ideological option of his own. Look at Lincoln in the times in which he lived. Everyone, you know, people. It's human nature to try to claim people uh, as a member of your tribe. But if you just look at the way that Lincoln was clearly. Uh, at odds with radical Republicans in his party and God knows conservative Democrats who were conservative populists in his time, the argument starts to break down from there. Lincoln is a single issue candidate when he runs for the Senate. 
but he is opposed to slavery's expansion. He is not an advocate for abolition, even as president, because he feels he's constrained by the Constitution. Only the war gives him the power, he believes, to start pushing through the Emancipation Proclamation. Not only that, he, de- he intentionally waits on the Emancipation Proclamation, in part because he doesn't want to alienate the border states. He's working on the border states, which are states that have had slavery but did not join the Confederacy. If he had gone too far too fast from an ideological absolutist position, those states would have joined the Confederacy and tipped the balance of power at a crucial time. Instead, Lincoln keeps them in the fold. He withstands the slings and arrows of abolitionists who say he's not committed enough, not zealous enough, not radical enough. It's not just Douglas, but Chase and other members of his own cabinet who say that about him. By the way, those people were not anything resembling conservatives in their time. <laughs> they were they were on the liberal side of that equation, which is something that our conservative friends sometimes forget because they latch onto the label Republican and don't look at the underlying philosophic continuity between positions of conservative and liberal. And by given, if you give people solely those two choices, Lincoln is a liberal leader, um, but he is not a radical leader, uh, i.e., from the radical left. So, so uh, from. You know, Over and over and over again, as I quote, uh, both from people assessing him as he lived to Lincoln's own assessment of the the, uh, political dividing lines of his time, he is not a a conservative in anything like the way we would define it today, in part because conservatives were in favor of conserving the union and the constitution as it was, as it was written then. So Lincoln is not a conservative as we would understand the term today, though yes, he is a Republican. The Republican tradition is very different than what it has come to be today. But neither is he a radical because he's conscious of the fact that if you move too far too fast, you will create a backlash that can actually hurt the cause of progress. He is interested in sustainable progress. As I say, his gradualism has a grandeur to it um, because he's interested in how you can uh, structure forces and incentive structures and articulate principles undergirded by his personal example that can lead to sustainable progress. And this is a combining strength with mercy. And this is something that I think people misunderstand about the center. It is about combining, you know, as I say, Lincoln is, is, is believes that decency can be the most practical form of politics, politics, of the golden rule treating other people as you'd like to be treated. But he understood that people were far more likely to listen to reason when greeted from a position of strength. There is no substitute for winning. And that's that's a, a an equation which it requires holding two ideas in balance, not tension, or, or tension, but not contradiction, that is key to effective leadership. And so that's where I, I, I feel that, uh, you know, Alan sort of, missed the mark, but I do understand that for a lot of committed partisans or ideological minded people today, that there is this sense that the center is not a credible place and everything must be sliced and diced into your own sort of virtuous frame of reference. But Lincoln was not a conservative in the context of his time. And there's every reason to suggest that he was not only not ideological absolutist, he was impatient with absolutism. And there's quote after quote to suggest that. You know, it's pointed out in your book that Lincoln is rarely described as a peacemaker because he was assassinated five days after Appomattox. He didn't live to see Southern Reconstruction. But you very convincingly, I think, put together Lincoln's view of how the peace was to be achieved after the war through a sort of narrative history of his last six weeks. Um, and again, I think you very convincingly how describe how he transmitted his view of the peace to come to people like Ulysses Grant, who then carried it out. And I guess, um, in simplest terms, what is the Lincoln formula for peace? Unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace. 
and that's absolutely critical to understand. Again, it's combining strength with mercy to get the most optimal outcome. And it's reflected also in, in, I think, Lincoln's understanding of human nature, which, by the way, incorporating an understanding of human nature and human frailty in the most forgiving sense is a very centrist thing to do. Most people don't like to be subjected to utopian projects. They don't like Lincoln in his vision of reconstruction is notably not a, 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 a believe in a top down one size fits all ideological approach. He is pragmatic. He is problem solving. He actually believes in federalism. He wants the states to buy into their own reconstruction. He believes and says that different states might have different solutions to this problem. And as long as they're steering towards the great, the same great goals, he doesn't much care how they get there. They'll be doing it at different paces and different tone and temper. And that's okay with Lincoln. One of the many things that he has to teach us all, but I think also in reflecting the best side of centrism, is that he is willing to be enormously flexible on details. He is offer, willing to offer enormous face-saving mechanisms to his opponents. He believes that empathy is a means of reasoning with his opponents, but he, is, he believes it's important to be inflexible on a handful of great goals. In the context of the war, when he's negotiating with uh, Confederates on the River Queen and elsewhere, he writes that there are three indispensable conditions he writes out in his own hand. And he presents them to Confederates on the River Queen at Hampton Roads Peace Conference. And also in the, after the fall of Richmond, it's an acceptance of federal authority. You know, that the, the, the seceding states will accept the authority of the United States government. Two, an end to slavery for all time, removing the root cause of the war. Three, no ceasefire before surrender. And that's incredibly important because he believes that if there's a ceasefire before surrender, that there will be backsliding on the great issue of slavery, that the political will will be lost. And that if that's not addressed, the peace won't hold. You'll see war erupting on the ashes of the past. And he's right about that. And so too in Reconstruction, he is focused on the great goals, but he's willing to be enormously flexible on the details. He wants to be very forgiving to the rank and file Confederates who he feel has been misled. He wants to liberal and honorable terms of peace, give them their guns to, guns to shoot crows with and their horses to go home and plow with. But among the people who should know better, the leaders of the rebellion and the insurrection, the people who left you know, Congress or, or the courts or the military to join the Confederacy, he does not want to offer those people the same sort of amnesty so they can simply reclaim their power. And that's not a contradiction. It's a sense of judgment and an understanding of human nature and realizing there needs to be accountability and truth before there can be real effective uh, uh, reconciliation. And that is a very human understanding, that is rooted in an understanding of human nature, which is one of the things that centrists do, I think, more empathetically, honestly, and accurately than our more ideological opponents who try to impose ideas, whatever they may be, and don't take into account, I think, people, just human nature, and the fact that people want to be treated with dignity and respect, and, and that they can be incentivized towards societally beneficial uh, behavior, but particularly if, if someone communicates to their head and their heart, rather than presume to dictate rules from top down, which most people will rationally push back on, something that some folks on the left and the right miss all the time. It reminded me that uh, one of the things I liked so much about your book was how you often take cultural objects like in this case, uh, GPA Healy's painting of Lincoln aboard the River Queen discussing plans for a post-war peace with his generals. Uh, and you kind of tease them apart in a way that's really entertaining. Well, thank you. That painting is great. Yeah. And I also really liked, you know, just the luminous portrait you paint of Lincoln uh, as a human being and how his qualities gave substance to 
his centrism and his moderation. And the portrait you present is one, uh, again, a sort of resounding quote, uh, Lincoln as a person of empathy, honesty, humor, and humility, and how all of those qualities were really very essential to his moderation. Absolutely. And, and this is something I think as, as, a, as a as a journalist, historian, you know, I, I think it can't be said enough, first of all, that character is the indispensable quality in a president. We learn that over and over and over again. Lincoln was not particularly well prepared for the presidency uh, to the extent that he held no executive offices, no military experience, but he had character and the capacity to grow. He knew how to empathize with people. And I do think, as I distill it, you know, it is empathy, honesty, humor, and humility that are the essential qualities of his personality. Those personal qualities translate to his principles and are ultimately find expression in his politics and policies. And I think that general equation stands, which is why we need to think about character far more fundamentally, I think, when we're, we're selecting our presidents. And, and Andrew Johnson is an example of the dangers that, that uh, can occur. We, we've had other more recent examples. And, you know, I think certainly from a matter of temperament, judgment, instinct, um, you know, Trump is the anti-Lincoln and vice versa. But so was Johnson. I mean, Johnson is described by the Atlantic Monthly at the time as being egotistic to the point of mental disease, thin-skinned <laughs> and vain and resentful. And those are dangerous qualities in, in as powerful as an executive as we have now, especially because they can take the nation further off center, particularly uh, at a time when firmness and magnanimity were, were, I think, most required. And we didn't have them at a critical moment. And it's one of the reasons why ultimately segregation, slavery is replaced by segregation for a century. You very convincingly, I think, present the tragedy of Reconstruction uh, under Johnson as one of the greatest missed opportunities in American history. And within that overall tragedy, tragedy of Johnson's abolition of the Freedmen's Bureau as one of the, the, the completely missed opportunities to rebuild an equitable uh, and lasting peace among the peoples of the United States. Yeah, the, the Freedmen's Bureau is a tragic lost opportunity. It's created by Lincoln. It's under the auspices of the Defense Department, but it really is sort of a public-private initiative designed to help bridge slavery to self-sufficiency and address the critical needs of, of refugees, both white and black, in the immediate aftermath of the war. And Johnson decides to gut it and attack it and, and, and dismantle it at a time when it could have been, it could have done uh, great good. Um, you know, I try not to get into what ifs, but what, you know, policy does interest me. I mean, you know, it's the ideas being put into action that interest me, the applied history, the useful wisdom. And, and you know, you look at some of the things that Lincoln did, even in the darkest days of the war in 1862, to set up a structure that he believed could help us win the peace. I mean, from the Transcontinental Railroad to the Homestead Act, which incentivized people to move west, to the, the, the land-grant colleges that established colleges, um, what he was trying to do was create a, a structure, an incentive structure rooted in public policy that would move the attention, the, na the, the nation's attention west rather than fixating on north-south of divides. It would be a, essentially a, a steam valve uh, that would, would, would let out steam and move people's attention and then setting up a structure where he believed that economic expansion would give people a sense of shared investment in a prosperous future, putting the past in, in the past. And he knew it would take time. I mean, we're talking about big things, multiracial democracy, majoritarian democracy. But but he, he said over and over again, you know, he hoped that gradually even whites and blacks in the South would uh, learn to live together, navigate a new way, but especially it, it, it underscored why um, voting rights were so essential to blacks. And of course, that's what was was subverted, I mean, really, to the nation. Uh, you know, the, the violence, uh, voter intimidation, 
violence, the, the voter suppression, the election subversion that characterizes Reconstruction is a reminder that we cannot take our gains for granted. Um, and I think, I think Grant's actions with the Anti-KKK Enforcement Act, which he has implemented by a Southern Attorney General, very centrist move that, is an example of where things briefly worked. He got us back on the Lincoln path. You call attention in a careful way to the distinction between Lincoln's uh, vision of a reconstruction of the South versus a restoration of the antebellum status quo, as you were. And I think that's very important because Lincoln was really holding out a vision of refounding the nation uh, and modernizing in many ways uh, and offering greater opportunities to people of the South and North alike. And, and you dug up a very curious quote from Jefferson Davis, of all people, near the end of his life, who you think would have been great with Andrew Johnson's crabbed and conservative vision of what happened in Reconstruction. But in fact, Jefferson Davis thought Lincoln's vision actually would have worked out better for the South. It was an extraordinary interview I found um, towards the end of Jefferson Davis's life. And in it, he grants that Lincoln was a, a great and wise man. Um, and then he says, you know, the, the death of Lincoln was one of the greatest misfortunes the South could have endured. And that was not an uncommon, uh, it was far from unanimous, but you had many leading Southerners who realized that the death of Lincoln was a great misfortune to the South because it would rupture that feeling of magnanimity that he had done so much to put into place. And, and, and as Javis says, he was replaced with the demagogue, Andrew Johnson, the worst of all men. Johnson, who was a Southerner, um, who was a war Democrat, but ended up really re-empowering the restoration of, of the planter class by, by giving basic blank, blanket amnesty uh, and by fighting equal rights every chance he could when it came to blacks because he was really motivated by a deep bigotry which suffused almost every, everything he did. It's, it's an object lesson in what not to do or at least the danger is the wrong person at the wrong time. So uh, although you've said that you don't like to engage in hypotheticals, I wonder what factors Lincoln might have brought up if he were around to guide us in our recent controversies over the Civil War statues that we find throughout the nation pertaining to the South and the Confederacy? As you say, I, I, don't, I don't love what ifs, but I tell a story about Lincoln in Richmond, where he's in a carriage ride soon after arriving, and, and the city's still, you know, the smoldering and is just coming under Northern uh, control, and he gets a carriage ride with his boy Tad next to him. And they go up to a uh, uh, the Libby prison, which was a converted tobacco warehouse that had been one of the most infamous POW camps during the war. It's now being briefly used to hold Confederates, some of whom were being guarded by their former slaves. And the crowd surrounding the Lincoln shouts, tear it down. And Lincoln, even in that moment, and I think here there's, among other things, that kind of a powerful cautionary tale about how wise leaders should always resist the calls of the mob. He raises his hand and said, no, leave it as a monument. And that to me is profound because the easy thing to do, of course, is to tear it down, erase the history. We've been through a traumatic event. Destroy any remnant of it. Lincoln's impulse is to say, no, that's the easy way out. And that's dangerous because we need to learn from our history to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. It requires learning the right lessons and erasing history is the easy and unwise way out. Now, how is that different than Confederate statues? Well, first of all, I think it would augur to at the very least say that Confederate statues should be in museums. We can't erase our history. But when you look at the context in which these Confederate statues are created, often decades after the Civil War, 
sometimes by descendants who wanted to think well of their forefathers and the overall process of, of reconciliation at the expense of honoring emancipation. But especially getting upticks in the wake of Brown v. Board, the most recent Confederate statue I'm aware of is, is uh, to uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, former KKK Grand Wizard Confederate General erected in the Tennessee State Capitol in 1970. What's that about? Doesn't mm-hmm. take a genius. UVA did a study recently showing that the, the overlaid uh, locations of known lynchings uh, versus uh, com- overlap with locations of Confederate statues. There's a high degree of correlation. Yeah, and... Uh- you know, obviously, there's a question of the accountability that was so much of a part of Lincoln's formula for peace, right? Denying the legitimacy of the South's defeat is what's at the heart of so many of those statues. Well, that's exactly right. And the lost cause mythology is particularly pernicious. It's one of the reasons why Lincoln insists on an unconditional surrender. He, 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 and he believes at the end of the war that the South knows it has been decisively defeated. But the rise of the lost cause mythology is one of the things he feared. Indeed, I think, you know, you can make a strong case that, you know, the big lie is a manifestation of lost cause mythology today, often in some cases using the same iconography, you know, Confederate iconography. So it's whenever our politics start descending into tribalism, we're on a dangerous path and lost cause mythology defends and tries to ennoble that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that what it has been ennobling, especially seen with perspective and over time, is, is the textbook definition of treason. There are lots of ways to know it's not simply a matter of heritage, not hate, one of which is that the, the Confederate Constitution explicitly mentions slavery. It's predicated upon the idea that all men are not created equal. And if you're obsessively trying to defend that tradition, what are you really talking about? So, you know, Lincoln has a great phrase called the Wolf's Dictionary, and it speaks to a lot of our divides today about language. He says even then, he said, we don't have a common definition of liberty. Because the South argued it was fighting for liberty, while, of course, fighting to defend slavery. And he told a story, as he often was wont to do, because he spoke in parables, learning it from Jesus and, and Aesop, among others. And he said, you know, the shepherd defends a sheep from an attack of a wolf, for which he is praised as a protector, a liberator of the sheep, but for which he is denounced by the wolf as a destroyer of liberty particularly if the sheep is a black one. He says, we've gone a long way towards repudiating the wolf's dictionary in recent years. And I think that's still a challenge we have today. Words have meaning. A lawyer like Lincoln knew that. And um, when people invoke liberty for causes that are contrary to the essence of that word, the where, that's one of the things we learned from history. When you hear echoes of old arguments that have been used to defend tyrannical things, don't take it at face value. You know, uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm thinking that in January 6th of last year, uh, we actually saw the Confederate flag uh, unfurled in the Capitol as it never was in the Civil War itself. Correct. And, you know, I've been haunted ever since then by a, a piece by Ann Applebaum that came out in the Atlantic just a few weeks later called Coexistence mm. with January 6th Seditionists is the Only Option. And by seditionists, she doesn't mean just those who stormed the Capitol, but those who sympathize with them because essentially they believe Donald Trump's lost cause, big lie of a stolen election and essentially reject the American political system. So again, drawing on Lincoln's example, what are we to do with these seditionists and not just the leaders, but those misled creatures as the the, the Confederates were referred to by an observer at the time? Well, first of all, I think the world of Ann Applebaum and many people... Um, some of the wisest people 
I think analyzers of our times are people who are um, have been associated with the center right, but broke decisively with Donald Trump because he was a repudiation of everything that movement allegedly believed in. I think looking at the Lincoln playbook, you'll see two things. First of all, there must be accountability and truth before there can be reconciliation. And that means legal accountability, particularly for the instigators of the insurrection. The Civil War generation left us a lot of, a number of laws, I should say, to deal with insurrections from the 14th Amendment Section 3, which would bar people who participate in insurrection from holding federal office to criminal statutes that deal with seditious conspiracy and treason, insurrection, rebellion, to, I would argue and have argued, you know, conspiracy to defraud the United States. They should be invoked. They exist for a reason. They were bequeathed to us by the Civil War generation specifically to use in future instances. They were not intended to be solely retrospective. I do think there needs to be a distinction between the people who try to perpetrate a fraud and attempt to overturn an election with the rank and file who've been misled. I do think also there's no substitute for victory in elections. I think ultimately the incentive structure has to change where people feel it's not profitable to fall alive. And that's a reason to push for election reforms that would actually re-empower the center and disempower this attempt to move our elections to close partisan play to the base contests where the extremes have stacked the deck in their favor because that only guarantees more division and defunction as we've seen because apparently an attack on the Capitol is not enough to unite us as a nation anymore. But I do think a distinction needs to be made. And if you study any, as I've done in my book, Wingnuts, and, 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 and re more recently in Reality Check, and if you study any, any cults or extremist groups and talk to people who've gotten out of them, there is a, a, a known process of how you de-radicalize people. The problem is it's not particularly scalable. But first of all, elevate the stories of people who have come to their senses and left the cult, have left the extremist group. The reason why these groups hunt for heretics so much is that the heretics are the people who are most threatening to their hold on power because they will have the most credibility ultimately with the people in the group. But it does require empathy and giving people a face-saving path away from extremism. It requires reminding them of the values that they said they once believed and how the movement they are following or the leader they are following contradicts those values in a fundamental way. It does not require a humiliating confrontational approach. Again, this is separate from legal accountability of which it, it absolutely is necessary. The process of getting to the truth and, and, and getting people to accept the truth in widespread public education efforts is also essential. We must establish the broadest possible coalition to defend democracy and to elevate the truth. That's why Kinzinger and Cheney and co are doing incredibly important work right now at their short-term political expense. John, as a last question, you and your wife are extremely good at being able to see the present political moment in the long sweep of history. You're also parents, I believe, to two children who are under the age of 10. Yep. Uh, are, are you more optimistic or pessimistic about the kind of world uh, and America that they're going to inherit? I'm optimistic. Um, I'm optimistic because my study of history suggests that while progress is far from inevitable, that day follows night. I believe that evil exists, must be confronted, but the vast majority of people are basically good. I believe we are at a jump ball moment where basic things like democracy and truth are under threat. I believe in the fullness of time, it will be seen as a reaction to globalization at a time when a lot of tribal identities and old certainties have been shaken. All the more reason to give people a sense of belonging to an idea that's bigger than themselves that is not rooted in tribal resentments. History shows us also that cults ultimately fail. 
Cults ultimately fade. They ultimately end, usually badly, by the way. And what really sums up my feelings on, on, on that subject, beyond you know the fact that having children is a civilizing force in part because it forces you emotionally to think about something larger than yourself, to think about the chain of destiny, to combine the past with the present with the future. The lessons of the past applied to the present in order to steer us toward a better future is an, unfortunately an apocryphal Lincoln quote, but I love it enough to quote it, <laughs> which is, I'm an optimist because I don't see the point in being anything else. <laughs> on that wonderful note, John Evelon, uh, thank you so much for talking with me. Congratulations on your new book thank uh, you, and best of luck in everything you do. Thank you so much to you as well and to all the listeners of the Vital Center. Keep fighting the good fight. And thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Engineering, and the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. Music.